0: بسم الله الرحمن الحمد والسلام على سيدنا محمد السلام ورحمة الله We will be talking about, insha'Allah, Badu Zaman Sa'id Nursi. And as far as I understand, everybody here knows English. If you don't know English, I will say raise your hand, but you can't. (laughs) Um, If you have difficulty understanding me, stop me and tell me to slow down, or uh, you know we will try to figure out something. I thought of this in two parts. Uh, At the beginning, I was assuming that there will be translation too, so I am also trying to adjust what I had in mind accordingly as we will uh, be going. The first part I want to talk in general about Bedu Zaman Said Nursi, his life, his work, his ideas, his system of thought. And then in the second part, I would like to read a little bit from his writings. Because you and I cannot understand Said Nursi without reading his work. He is someone who has preferred to... uh, Melt his own identity in, in the in the work that he had put out. When people would come to him asking him to become their teacher or sheikh, he would tell them, "I don't have what you want me to give to you, but go read the uh, the books that I've written, the Risale-i Nur." And he would say, "The teacher of the Risale-i Nur is the Risale-i Nur, the collection uh, that he has." written, we call it Risale-i-Nur. So Inshallah, the first part, I'll try to talk about him. If you have questions, uh, if you have questions at any point, raise your hands. And then at the end, I might try to, I might try to leave some uh, time for questions uh, too. And then we will try to read a little bit uh, from his works, Inshallah. Okay, Bismillah. He was born in 1878. And there is some controversy about it. If you Google this, you may find 76, 77. Uh, the soundest information is that he was born in 1878. But you know, people did not keep records very uh, precisely at that time. So there might be some margin of error in that. 70, 1878 is the closest, most accurate uh, that we can get to based on the information that we have. He was born, what, we, what at that time was called Kurdistan. So today's northern Iraq and southeast Anatolia together and maybe a little bit of Iran and, and northern Syria can also be thrown into the uh, mix. That's where he was born. He was a scholar, alim, agnostic, arif, and, you know, it's difficult to translate this, but saint, wali, I suppose everybody here will understand when I say wali and that's something difficult to ascribe to people who are living because we haven't seen the end of their lives but he, as I you know, said he was born in 1878 he passed away in 1960 and he lived a clean life and anybody who takes a look at his life will grant that he was a wali he was a saint of God now al-amalu um, bin niyad right and who understands this in Arabic now raise your hands if you understand al-amalu bin niyad okay uh, in, uh, actions are according to intentions this hadith right so before we start anything we need to check our intentions why, why am I going to talk about Bedu Zaman Nursi and why are you going to be listening to me about Bedu Zaman Nursi today there might be many different things to expect from this. Uh, what I have in mind is that uh, the story of his life offers us a model for, I, you know, I need to move here too, the story of his life offers us a model for the position to be taken before knowledge, ilm, knowledge. Right? Anybody here who has uh, read the first book of here? Ihyya almutin. First book? Come on, somebody should answer. Have... Okay, that, that's the task. When you go home, start. The first uh, book of Ehia is on knowledge. And if you read it, you will... I mean, there might be other places to, to acquire this uh, notion, but that's one of the best places. If you read it, you will, you will see how important knowledge is, how, it, how, how a great thing knowledge is. And bedu life offers us a model for the position to be taken before knowledge. And it also offers us a model for ubudiyah. Ubudiyah comes from the word abd, right, which means a slave or servant. I, 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 sometimes people have hesitations about the word slave uh, when it is used Uh, to ascribe a person to God, there is no problem with it. We are slaves of God. There is nothing wrong with that. Um, And also the word ibadah, worship, coming from the same root, right? The difference between ibadah and ubudiyah is that ibadah, worship, is the particular specific actions that we do in order to worship God. Praying five times a day, fasting you know, going on hajj, so on and so forth. These are ibadah. Rabudiyah, on the other hand, is the position that we take before God. It's a state, right? Ibadah is action. Rabudiyah is a state that we take. And his life offers a model for the state to be taken before God, too. Rabudiyah. I tried to find an approximate word in English. Devotion was a word that that I came up with. But it's better not translated, rather understood. Yes. Is that selfless devotion? Uh, if it is selfless, all the better. But it doesn't have to be selfless. Right? Because uh, you know one can attain that state of slavehood before God to escape hell, which is not selfless, to attain paradise, which is okay, or for only for Ru'yatullah, you know, at which point you attained it you in know, a selfless point. And third, in my opinion, his life story offers a model for the service to the believers and humanity, to the Mu'minun, Muslims, and also humanity in general. The service to religion, service in general. Hidmah is the word in Arabic. So, if we can try to focus our attention to, the, to these three uh, models, we might benefit more from what I will be uh, telling you, inshaAllah. <clears throat> now, um, I forgot the name. There is a German author who wrote about kalam. He wrote a book about uh, matur Rudi. Maturudi, as you know, is the um, founder of one of the two best-known Sunni um, theological schools. And he calls Maturudi the famous unknown. It's the contradiction, right? Famous, but unknown. The famous unknown, right? Because everybody knows about Maturudi. Everybody has heard the name of Maturudi. And people even think that they believe in what Maturidi said is the right way to believe, right? But we actually actually know very little about the actual work, writing, and so on and so forth, that Maturidi had, has put out. Very little. You know, we keep digging in, and then we know him through his students, and so on and so forth. So he's famous, but he remains unknown to some degree. Bedu Zaman Ibn Nursi is somewhat like that. He is very famous. Wherever you go, I'm sure in Germany, I'm sure you have heard, at least the name. Um, But very few people, and this includes Turkey, this includes, I will say, I will dare say, uh, many of the people who think they are his followers, who have been reading his works for, let's say, 30 years. Many people know about him, but again, I'll dare say many people actually know him. That might include myself to some extent. Uh, knowing him requires a very close, attentive reading of his works. And then, not only that, but also placing those works, the content of those works, in the larger scholarly, and I'll say Sufi, tradition of Islam. If you take a jewel, a, a gem, a precious stone, a baker. The baker may look and say, yeah, this looks precious, but the baker will not be able to tell you the actual value of that gem. If you take the gem to a jeweler, the jeweler will be able to tell you what it is exactly. So one problem is that many of the readers of Nursi will read Nursi only, and they won't have any point of comparison to relate him to, and therefore, it remains very difficult for them to understand the actual value of this man. Right? <clears throat> so there are some criteria that Muslims throughout generations, throughout centuries have developed in order to understand the value, evaluate the value of a scholar that has contributed to the Ummah, to the community of, of Muslims. It happens that many of the most, um, or many of the giants of our scholarship come from the lineage of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and that of course indicates the dua that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi had for his um, uh, offshut, for his descendants. And Bediouzama Said Nursi, you know, many people don't know this, descends from the Prophet Sallallahu both through his mother and through his father. This was a matter of uh, dispute until recently, um, but Ahmed Akkündüz, I don't know if he, you know, he is uh, in Holland most of all the time. He might have come here too. I don't know if he did or not. But Ahmed Akkündüz recently, a few years back, uh, published a six-volume, when I say volume, each volume is like this uh, study of the life of Abdulaziz Mansa Sayyid Nursi, and there he has uh, quite convincing documentation that he, Nursi, descends from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi uh, On his father's side, he descends from Hasan radhiyallahu through Abdul Qadir Al Jilani. Uh, therefore, he is Sharif, and on his mother's side, he descends from Hussein radhiyallahu an, and therefore he is Sayyid. Now, Sherif and Sayyid used to be used in this way. For other side, sorry, uh, the sense of Hassan used to be called Sherif and the sense of Hussain used to be called uh, Sayyid. Since around the late 19th century, that distinction somehow disappeared and we only tend to use Sayyid now. But they both mean the lineage of the Prophet from different lines. Okay, so that was one. Another and very important, is the scholarship that he has. Um, many out there who know about Nursi, but don't know Nursi, think that he did not have an ijazah. Who can tell him what an ijazah is? Say that. It's qualification. qualification, okay. It's a certified qualification. The certification of one's qualification for something. Special qualification, as yes, in special. Yes. So uh, you may have an ijazah to, I don't know, to teach a particular book. So that's permission, right? Permission to teach a particular book. To, for permission to teach the 40 hadith of Imam Nawawi, right? Or you may have a comprehensive ijazah. You may have gone through the entire Madrasa curriculum and become a scholar, and the ijazah you have indicates that you are now a scholar. You can teach. You are a teacher, right? So uh, Nursi actually had two ijazahs. Very few people know this, but he had two ajazas. Um One of them, now, remember, when was he born? You will remember. Okay. 78, yes. 1878. He was born in 1878. The first ajaza there you see is 1893. How old was he? 15 years old. He got his first ajaza, and that's a comprehensive ijazah means like finished, 1893. So there you start to see that there is something extraordinary about this person, right? I don't know another person who received the, the, this kind of ijaz at age 15. The second one comes after a couple, maybe three years uh, from another person living in the same vicinity in eastern Anatolia. Uh, the first one is Muhammad Jalali Hazret, the second one is Fatullah al and both of these are comprehensive ijazahs, teaching ijazahs, and both of them link him to Ali radiallahu anh. So each ijazah, if it's a proper ijazah, has a sanad, a, a chain of narration goes from one person to another. So, Ali radiallahu taught this person this person, taught this person, this person taught this person, this person taught this person, this person taught this person, and it goes through Imam Ghazali, taught Imam Ghazali, Imam Ghazali taught... This person in one of the chains is Fahd nirazi taught this person and so on and so forth and then in the end taught Muhammad Jalali Hazret and Muhammad Jalali Hazret when he gives the ijazah to Bediul Zaman Sayyid Nursi writes, and I taught Sayyid Nursi and I certify that he has the qualification. So the qualification goes back to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Mm-hmm. In both of these cases his qualifi- his senate, right, his chain of narration goes to uh, Ali radiyallahu and, and then from Ali radiyallahu to the uh, to the prophet sallallahu mm-hmm. through Imam Ghazali um, but one may have the ijazah and then not act accordingly uh, one may have the knowledge or information but not act the way that knowledge deserves or requires and therefore one may have a paper but not the uh, the character and the effort that paper requires. That's not the case with Veduzman Said Nursi. And when we know that, how, we, how do we know that that's not the case? That's from the recognition of the larger community of Muslims. Now, when he received the Ijaz at age 15, uh, this is because he was a gifted person, extremely gifted person. He had a very sharp memory. Some some say that he never forgot something that he read, and that's, that may as well be the, the the case. When he read something, he did not forget it. So in eight, until 1892, he goes from madrasa to madrasa in the region he lives, and he cannot find a teacher that will competently teach him. He finds every, you know a missing something in each teacher that he tries to study with. Therefore, he cannot excel. And then eventually, in 1892, he goes to a town called Bayezid, and there meets Muhammad Jalali Hazret, and there he finds the fertile ground, and in one winter, he goes through the entire madrasa curriculum, just reads and memorizes, reads and memorize, and then gets the ajazah. Right? And this is extraordinary. People around, you I mean, they did not have TV at that time. They did not have, you know, cell phones, so on and so forth. People sat down and talked with each other. And as people sit down and talk with each other, his fame goes everywhere. So wherever he travels thereafter, people are curious. The scholars of the area come and start to ask him questions. They test him. They test him, they test him, they test him. And never in his life was he asked a question, a scholar question, but he gave a convincing and sound answer. So they are surprised. They cannot believe this. They think this is marvelous, and therefore they start to call him bedi al zaman the marvel of his time. That becomes his alias. People start calling bedi al zaman This is around age 16 and so on and so forth. And that fame spreads in all of eastern Anatolia, northern Iraq, northern Syria. He keeps traveling in the region. Later on, he goes to Istanbul, the center of the ummah for the time, right? And in Istanbul, you have much more advanced scholars, both in Istanbul and coming from different parts of the world, and they also test them. They also test them, they ask questions, and he's always giving the you know, answer that is the soundest, shortest, most comprehensive, most convincing. They say, okay, yes, this person is Badu So there is that recognition. Not only among ordinary people, but among the scholars of his time. And to add to this, in around 19, beginning of 1918 or so, he was appointed as a member of the highest scholarly council of the Ottoman Empire. Dar al Islamia, al is the name of that council. So it was also recognized officially by the Ottoman Empire. So, he had clean and perfect scholarly credentials. That's another criterion that we have in order to, you know, evaluate the weight of a scholar that we are looking at. Okay, next. Next. Spiritual lineage. As you can see at the end of that slide, this is unfortunately somewhat of a uh, controversial issue. I might come back to it. I'm not sure if I will, but I might come back to it. Uh, At his young age, when he was going from madrasa to madrasa, when people had started to recognize his extraordinary qualities, and again, he had an extremely sharp mind, but it was not sh- sharp memory, but it was not only memory. He also had an extremely sharp ability to process information into knowledge. So there's a distinction between information and knowledge. Information is, an, is what you attain by observing, the facts that you attain by observing phenomena, by observing things around. Uh, fire burns. This is information. Um... Iron softens, melts softens, becomes malleable when treated with heat. This is information, right? You can use fire to shape iron and make something from it. This is knowledge. You can go one step further. If you can use that knowledge to offer solutions to problems in society, in your environment, that's understanding. So he had extremely sharp intellect in all these categories. He was being asked questions and he was using the information that he had memorized and giving them answers. The Sufi Shaykhs of the area also recognized this and they all tried to attract him as their murid, as their disciple. Uh, and he goes to all of them. And what he says is, I couldn't decide which one to go with. They all had their you know, marvelous, wonderful size. I couldn't go to go with, with which, which one. But he received something from each one of them. One of the you know, best known ones, is the, the name is written that Shaykh Abd al-Rahman al-Taghi. Uh, it is said that one day, uh, Shaykh Abdul al-Rahman al was sitting with his uh, disciples. And then all of a sudden he gets up and, rushes out and runs away and then you know they try follow him and eventually they find him by a bridge Nursi, he's around 12 or so was coming to this village and there was a bridge and he had crossed the bridge so they had met by that bridge and they find the sheikh um, sitting down closed eyes Nursi in front of him with his hands tied like this in front of him and they both eyes are closed and something is happening and then later the Shaykh says that this child, the way he's advancing in his studies, in his scholarship, so fast advanced in the, uh, in the path, the, the, um, the path of knowing God, let's call it, in such a fast way too. Uh, this obviously is not something that we can produce an evidence for, but based on uh, what Nursi tells us in his life story, it seems he had some... The word there is Uwaisi, I will explain it. Uwaisi connections with Abdul Qadir Al-Jilani and Imam Rabbani Ahmed Hindi too. And Abdul Qadir Gilani, jilani as I suppose you all know, is the, uh, the, the beginning of the chain of the Qadri Sufi order, and Imam Rabbani is a giant of the Naqshbandi order, the, the, the starter of the Mujaddidi uh, branch in the um, Naqshbandi order. And Uwaisi means the word goes to, to Uwais um, al-Qurani, uh, who did not see the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi wa but he received his blessings without seeing him. So if there is a connection between, uh, in another realm, between two uh, friends of God, awliya of God, that is without physically seeing one another, we, we, we call it waisi. Right. But again, this is not something we can obviously produce evidence for. He said that his mashrab, we can translate that as character, was Qadri, and his maslek, the, the path that he followed, the uh, method that he followed, was Shazali. And of course, these are again two uh, Sufi orders. The way that I understand that is that he was very uh, Jalali. Jalal, right? Uh, we know that God has names, and we can classify those names in uh, three. Or scholars have categorized those uh, names in three categories. One is Jalali, majestic names, like uh, Azeem, the Tremendous. Right? Uh, Or Qahar. Or um, when we say Allahu Akbar. Akbar. Right? So these are Jalali. And then there are the Jamali names. Jamil. Beautiful, beautiful names. So he was a very Jalali person, intense person but especially in the second part of life which we will inshallah come to when he started to teach the ummah he follows a very gentle path in his teaching and therefore this is how I understand this therefore his maslak the method that he followed is that I mean and that's also you know two uh, characterizations that we can have for these two uh, tariqas, Qadri, Abdul Qadri Jilani, is very Jellali, and Shazili is relatively, compared to it, very very, uh, Jamali. Gentle. Uh, Again, this is one of the most misunderstood aspects of his legacy. Quickly, let me say a couple of things about that. So, he was born in 1878. And died in 1960, lived in the Ottoman Empire, then the Republic of Turkey. In the Republic of Turkey, uh, beginning in 1924, 1925, all uh, tariqas were banned. All the Sufi lodges were closed. All the madrasas were closed. Uh, after 1928, the Arabic letters were banned, and it was forbidden to teach uh, the Arabic letters, which then means that it was forbidden to teach the recitation of the Qur'an and so on and so forth. I have met people who had lived those years, and it it was a horrible time. It was a very difficult time for Muslims to be. And again, tariqahs were were banned. Anybody who uh, was out there teaching and giving tariqah would be judged, would be jailed, would be possibly executed, his students would be dispersed, exiled, and so on and so forth. So in that context, he says, this is not the time for tariqah, this is the time for haqiqah. Now, tariqah, Sufi, Sufism, right, means path. And haqiqah means reality, right? So, some have understood this as Nursi being against tariqah. Not at all. As I said, he received blessings from many shiyukh, many Sufi, uh, Sufi masters. He says, my mashrab is Qadri. He says, my maslik is shazili. Uh, at some point he says, if, if uh, um, Imam Rabbani, Ahmed Hindi, was alive today, if I heard that he was alive today, I would stop everything, drop everything, and just go, walk wherever he is to find him and to see him once. He has a treatise on tariqah. And if you read it, you see that he has nothing against tariqah. but well, he has cautions against mistakes that are done in the name of tariqah, in the name of Sufism. Right? But that's a different question. And when I say this, don't let your minds to go to Salafism. He was not Salafi. Right? Don't let your minds go there. I'm talking about a different thing here. Um, but this was a context in which tariqahs were banned, and he was trying to teach people, and he says, this is not the time of tariqah, this is the time of Haqiqa Right? And that does not mean that he thought uh, if it was not banned, say, you know, tariqah was not banned in, um, in Egypt at the time, right? If you are in Egypt, tariqah is enough. It's not the time for, for uh, hakika. it's time for tariqah. No, that's not what he's saying either. There is an intrinsic, essential reality to what he is saying, what he was saying. And I have heard this from many Sufi shaykhs, Two, the time that we live in has special circumstances. To to excel in tariqah, in in the Sufi path, you need uh, tremendous concentration and protection in order to be able to excel there under the circumstances that we uh, live in. With With the distractions of life that we have. So the story goes, and I don't know the reality of this story, but you know, sometimes we listen to these stories in order to understand the, the, the meaning that they are trying to convey. And the story goes that there was this uh, saint. Um, he was living on top of a hill and you know, worshiping God, praying. And one day he had to go to the market down the hill. He had to go to the market and do something in order to eat, uh, you know, feed himself and he gets hungry, he uh, milks his sheep and gets some milk and puts the milk in a handkerchief. Now, handkerchief obviously is made of fabric and milk does not stay in handkerchief, right? But he was a saint, right? He had this karama, he, this uh, miracle that when he put the milk in the handkerchief, it stayed there, it did not go through. And he takes the milk and, you know, goes and The time comes for prayer. He stops by a fountain. As he is taking wudu, there passes something. He sees something passing by, turns around. It's a lady. And he turns back, continues to take wudu, and looks, the milk is gone. So, we are not on hilltops. Right? The, I don't have to describe to you the context that we are living in and the amount of distraction that we have here. So I have heard from many sheikhs saying we are not uh, focusing on having people travel on the path to the utmost that people used to go at, at, at some point. We are trying to preserve people. Right. So when he says hakika, what he is saying is we need to let people learn the hakika, the reality that... that uh, people try to attain by traveling on the path. Right? The ultimate reality. We need to focus on that. And we need to find ways of attaining that despite all this distraction that's around us. And that's what he will focus on in his own work. Right? And later on in the 1950s, when things relaxed in Turkey a little bit, he says, until now I used to say, uh, that it's not the time of uh, tariqah, it's the time of haqiqah but now time showed that the works that I have produced, he doesn't say I but the, he, he refers to the works that he has produced, the Risale-i Nur contains the essence of the 12 major tariqahs and anybody from any of those tariqahs can benefit from this alright so, lineage, scholarship, spirituality, spiritual lineage and credentials. Next, his struggle, jihad, jihad or jihad, his struggle. And that's his life. His life is a one you know, big chunk of struggle. Even at an early age, he was very harsh on his uh, nas compulsive soul. Ate very little. Uh, Istighna is the word that we can use here. He would not accept charity. He would not accept even gifts. He would eat very little. Um, he would go, you know, without sleep. Right? it would constantly struggle with that compulsive soul. Because one who does not overcome the compulsive soul cannot overcome anything. The reason why we call jihad, or the reason why we use the word jihad in relation to war, is that in war, the soldier has to overcome his his own self so that he can put his life at the line of danger. If you don't overcome the composite self, you cannot put your life in front of danger. And the bullets are passing by. You just run away. You have to overcome the self. Right? That's, why we are, we, that's why the word jihad is used in relation to war. Right? So it's a much larger concept as the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam also indicates to us that that's the bigger jihad. Right? So he was struggling with his nafs with his compulsive soul, all his life, starting from a very young age. Um, but aside from that, right, he also showed his presence in actual war. During World War I, he led a, voluntary, uh, a, a military unit of voluntary soldiers, and he eventually fell a prisoner of war, and he spent about two years as a prisoner of war in Russia. And while he was leading, commanding that uh, voluntary army, he actually protected the, the, um, the uh, um, residents of a whole town from an advancing Russian army. But the thing that I really like most about his effort during that war is, he was commanding his army on horseback, giving orders. Bullets are passing by he had one of his students riding next to him on another horse and he had that student, he dictated to that student one of his best books on the battlefield. It's called Isharatul Ijaz. It's a, it's a book, um, it's, it's a tafsir, an exegesis of, this, of Surah Al-Fatiha and the first 33 verses of, of Surah Al-Baqarah, the first two chapters of the Qur'an. And that tells you where his heart and mind was, even in the context of that that war, right? One who does not overcome the compulsive soul cannot focus on tafsir while bullets are passing by. That's not possible. Ikhlas, sincerity, sincerity in purpose, selfless, devotion, right? His entire life, he never got married. But he was asked at some point, "Don't you have desire?" And he said, "I do. I'm a normal human being, but I cannot think of it." Like imagine a man uh, who is having problems with his work. He is about to go bankrupt. When he goes home at night, he will be—he will continue to think about that, you know, going bankrupt. His mind won't go anywhere else. That—that that, that will be his focus. That will be his obsession. I have an obsession. I'm obsessed with this state of the Muslim, Muslims. How they are losing. Remember, this is a man born in 1878. He saw World War I. He saw the colonization of all Muslim lands, right? That's the context. He saw the destruction of the Caliphate, uh, evolution of the Caliphate. That's, that was unimaginable, right? The Caliphate was, Never not there, for, except for three years in the 13th century. Gone. He saw all of these. So he's like, I'm obsessed with this. I don't have the time, I don't have the mental energy to, to think about other things. I'm focused. Sincerity and purpose. Contemplation. <clears throat> this is Probably what produced the, 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 the fruits that he gave to us, the works that he gave to us, the Inur collection, the collection of Recyde Inur. It's an exercise in contemplation, tafakkur. Maybe that's going to be understood better, right? Tafakkur. That's an exercise in tafakkur. And it's also a guidebook to how to contemplate the signs of God in the creation. And his life is a constant struggle in moving a bit further and a bit further and a bit further in this. Seeing those signs. And inshallah, if you get to that point and read from uh, a little bit from his works, you will understand what I mean here better. Inshallah. How are we doing with time? What time do, am I supposed to stop? I did not so feel... But what is enough? Uh, that, uh, Maghrib <laughs> will be... Okay, good. Inshallah. Okay. Now, um, another thing that I'm going to put in there under the rubric title of Struggle on the Path is his compassion. His obsession with the state of the ummah And not only with the state of the Ummah, but all all humans actually relate to His compassion. Now what's compassion? Compassion is the mercy and mercy together with the willingness to sacrifice or the willingness to do something as a result of the mercy that you have toward Something. One example that he gives about this is uh, he, uh, again, contemplation, right? You look around. I look around and I see a cushion, right? When he looked, he, he would probably see something, yes, in addition to the cushion. And there are lots of people who would do that, right? So he sees a chicken trying to protect it's babies, the chicks, from a dog. Now, chicken is known to be... scary, scaredy, right? Chicken is probably the most scared animal out there. Right? It's, you, a little sound and they're going to run away. right? But when the dog is attacking the chicks, the chicken attacks the dog. Right? This is compassion. right? The mercy that the chicken, mother chicken, has for the chicks, the desire, the urge to protect its chicks is making the chicken so courageous that it is attacking a dog. So the driving force is compassion. And the driving force for him was the compassion that he had for the ummah and for everything else. We have these uh, um, descriptions of instances from his life. Right. One day he is sitting. Uh, he was jailed many times throughout his life. So, right after one of those uh, okay, uh, jails, he was released, and he is sitting in a uh, hotel and looking out. And fall, the the leaves are falling. The, the the leaves that had been green and you know living throughout the summer in the fall are falling. And he says, his eyes tear. He has the, the compassion for those leaves, right? At some point, he was he, he decides to go and live in a cave away from all people, and he sees ants. And he has soup. He takes the pieces of um, let's call wheat uh, vermicelli is the word for it, but anyway, pieces from out from the soup and puts in front of the ants, right? In prison, he is given a little bit of provision. He takes some of it and gives it to the mice. Compassion. So what made him obsessed with the condition of the ummah and therefore led to his struggle, driving force, is compassion. Not anger. That's important. There are a lot of people out there who are really have a lot of himmah, effort. They are going to conquer the world without anger. And that doesn't lead to a nice place in the end. Because anger is fire, it burns. And when fire burns, it does not distinguish between, the, uh, you know, between what is supposed to be burned and what's not supposed to be burned. With, with anger, actually, um, you know, psychiatrists, I guess, have made these studies. They, you know, what, what do they call it? They um, image the brain, right? They image the brain of people at a state of anger. The connection between the frontal cortex, where we have our um, um, adult intelligence, and the rest of the brain is severed when a person is angry. Right? So you lose your adult intelligence when you're angry. So, yes, it produces a lot of himmah. It produces a lot of effort and struggle, and so on and so forth. But it's not necessarily placed in the right direction. But when it's from coming out of compassion, that's a different situation. So I'll skip a few slides and then I will come back to those actually. So the fruits of his struggle. I would say the first and foremost fruit of all the struggle, his istighna, asceticism, Uh, Devotion, worship, um, contemplation, effort. I would say the first and foremost fruit of that struggle was his realization. Tahqiq. When I say realization, what I mean is As I said, when I look at this, I see the cushion, he would probably see something else. There is a reality behind the appearances around us. There is a reality to the... I see the tip of a tree over there. (laughs) There is a reality to that tree. You know, when I look, I see a... stump, branches, leaves, uh, and then if you want to dig further, like, cells, Selmos, what's the thing that gives the green color, um, chlorophyll, chlorophyll, whatever it is, (laughs) All of that. Is that not real? It is real. I'm not saying that that's not real. I'm, I'm not going to go that path. It does exist. It is there. I grant it, right? But there is another reality to it. There is a reality that causes that tree to be there. And the way we understand it is that is a manifestation of God's names and attributes. Existence, cosmos, is God's self-revelation, right? So the tree has a strong stem. God is Matin. The name Matin, like maybe firm. Is that an accurate translation for Matin? The tree is sustained. God is a sustainer. The tree has provision. Sunlight comes from top. Oxygen and carbon dioxide is in the air. Minerals and everything else that are coming from the earth, they are coming to it. God is the provider. The tree is alive. God is living and life-giving. Right? The tree is beautiful, God is beautiful. One who does not have beauty cannot give beauty. And if something has received beauty, there is a giver of beauty. Right? So this is contemplation. It's the beginning of it. Right? So he, he, he would look at the tree and he would see this. But this is only about an object. And then there are, there, there are realities behind events. Happenings, states, and you know the um, God gives us, us the best examples, right? In in uh, um, Surah Al Kahf, the story of Hadr and Musa alayhi salam. I suppose you all know uh, that story, so I'm not going to go into the details. But you know the, the boat that has that Hudr alayhi salam, uh, drills a hole. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> the uh, the child that Hudr alayhi salam, slaughters kills. The wall that he builds, and Musa alayhis-salam is there. Like, what is going on here? What is this man doing, right? And then when he explains it, oh, wow! It all fits. It all makes sense, right? Is there anybody who doesn't know the stories? So I don't want to be, you know. Okay, so I'll tell, tell more about the story. So, uh, Musa alayhis-salam, This is from the Quran. Uh, Musa a.s. Uh wants to meet Hadr Ali because he learns that Hadr Ali salam is a person who is more knowledgeable than he is. Right? And they meet, but Hadr and he wants to travel with Hadr, because Hadr is traveling, so that he can learn from it. But Hadr says, you cannot be patient in the face of what, what you see when you are traveling with me. And he says, no, I'll be patient, I'll keep quiet. Okay. And then... They come to a river, they are going to cross the boat. They, get on a, they, they are going to cross the river, they get on a boat, and as they are crossing toward the end, Khudr drills a hole, or breaks a part of the boat. Uh, hurts, harms the, the boat. And Musa is like, but this man helped us cross the river, why did you, you know, drill a hole on the boat? And he says, didn't I tell you you cannot be patient in the face of what you see with me? He said, okay, I'm, you know, give me another chance. And they travel. Khudr sees a child and he kills the child. And he's like, what? Right. You killed an innocent child? And he says, didn't I tell you? You can't be patient in the face of what you see with me. And he says, okay, one more chance. And if I do this again, that's the end of it. I'll let you, I'll leave you. And then they come to a village and they you know, ask for provision from the villagers to be hosted as guests, but they don't welcome them. They don't host them. And this is really rude. And maybe not today, but at those times it was really rude. Up, up until maybe 50 years ago, in most places in the world, if you went to a village, they would host you. This is very rude. But then Hudr goes and he finds a wall that is about to fall apart, and he starts repairing the wall. And this is service to the villagers. And Musa is like, they didn't provide us, and you are repairing their wall. And he says, didn't I tell you? He says, okay, I'll leave you. And then he says, okay, I'm going to tell you the reality of it what you saw, but that's the end of it for us. So he says, there was a king on the other side of the river, on the other shore, he was confiscating people's boats, probably for a, for a war or something, I don't know. He was confiscating people's boats, and when he saw that boat was harmed, he would not confiscate that boat. So he did a service to the man, to the owner of the boat. The child was destined to be a Shaki, a, a a rebellious, Person And his parents were making dua to God that God give them, uh, Said, a Saeed, um, an obedient uh, slave, right? So God accepted their supplication, uh, ordered me to kill the boy, I killed the boy, and God is going to give them another child who will be an obedient slave of God. In that village, there were two orphan uh, children, two orphans. Uh, Their father was a devout person and he had buried a treasure under the wall for his children to to find when they came of age. If the the wall fell apart now, the villagers would find the treasure and take it. Whereas I repaired the wall, now it's going to last longer, it's going to fall apart when the boys grow up and they are going to get their treasure and it will be theirs. So the reality of it. So this is, uh, one way to understand predestination qader. Right. so there is a reality to the, the events that are happening around us too and it's very important to be able to read the events from this point of view and this applies to everyone, like individually to us I get sick okay I got sick why did I get sick right? what did I do to deserve this I, I'm a perfect person I never deserved anything but it happened to me or, so I must have done something. This might be a cure for another sickness, a spiritual sickness that I have. This might, might, might be something that God, God gave to me to compensate for some wrong that I did and He does not want to punish me in the hereafter, but He's giving it to me here. This might be a way that God is disciplining me and He is excelling me in my path. Right? All of these things. And you see, if you read his works, you see this in action. He has you know, wonderful interpretations of, uh, let's say, World War II, World War I, earthquakes. Lots of things that you know, your, your mind has really, it's really difficult to um, move on when you see it happening. So, but there is a reality behind those and it's beautiful. Reality is beautiful when you can't comprehend it in its entirety. Our problem is we are like microbes in, on, on our teeth. A microbe living on you know, one of our teeth now, a, a good microbe, doesn't have to be a bad microbe, is living in our body but has no idea what we are. We, for the microbe, is, I don't know, some uh, number of uh, micro-centimeters, micro-millimeters, mill- whatever that measure is, micro-millimeters of bone. That, that's it, that's what we are for the microbe. It, it's living in us. That, that's how we are in relation to reality. We comprehend it to the extent that we have access to that reality from what God has taught us from that reality. Why did God teach us that reality? How did God teach us that reality, about that reality? So that's a question. How do we know about that, how did God teach us about that reality? It's an easy question, come on. <laughs> how does God teach His slaves? There is prophets. prophets and books. Right? The Qur'an, the prophets. right? Now, scholars are inheritors of prophets. <clears throat> we have access to that reality in the time that we live in through the scholars who direct us to the prophets, who direct us to the revelation who, that, which directs us to God. Right? And Nursi was a scholar who, as a result of a struggle, had come to a realization a deep understanding of reality at which point he was ready to share it with us and the works that he wrote the risale Inner collection right are products of that realization and in it he offers us a system of probodhiya and if anybody was not here at the very beginning of the talk, Ubudiyya is the state that we take before God. Slavehood. Servanthood or slavehood. Right? He offers us a system of Ubudiyya. Um, by the way, all tariqas do this. So in India, he is doing, doing something that tariqas do, the, you know, Sufi, in the Sufi path we attain. Right? But he is doing it with a different methodology through the book. <clears throat> and his system of Ubudiyya has four main components. And he names them. I'm not, you know, I'm not extracting. I'm not inferring this from his work. He names them. The first one is Ajz. Powerlessness. The second one is Fakr. I'm, I'm going to try explaining them. The second one is Fakr. Neediness. Third one There are two versions for the third and uh, fourth, but they are actually related. Tafakkur or dhikr, contemplation and remembrance of God. And the fourth one is um, shefkat. or this should have been an F, not W. Shefkat, compassion, and shavq, enthusiasm. Right? So what does, I'll actually start from Fakr, And the way he, uh, the, the way he Helps us follow that system is he addresses our intellect. He helps us understand certain realities by addressing our intellect, and then things start to fall in place, and it's easy to to, to follow on from there. I'll start from faqr, neediness. Humans are the most needy creature in existence. We may look, we may appear to be more powerful than, say, ants. We may appear to be you know, superior to the, the, the frame window frame over there. We may appear to be superior to, the, to this wood. We are. We are. But we are needier than the piece of wood because we need a lot. We need a lot. Now, what does the wood need? It needs its existence to be sustained. It needs a floor to stand on. Maybe that's it. Right. What does the plant need? The plant needs water, light, uh, minerals, carbon dioxide in the air. Okay, I need those too. I need that too, I need those two. What does an ant need? The ant needs uh, food and a metabolism to function, uh, a colony to live in, a house. What do we call ant house? What do you call ant? Whatever, nest, right? Ant-nest. And nest, well, as a human being I need those two, right? Then I need what anything in creation needs as a human being. Does it end there? No. Because at this point I'm equal with the ant, I'm equal with the animal. Does it end? No. Well, what makes me different from the animal is that I can feel the need for anything that I can think of or imagine. What do you do with that? The cow needs grass, and if it finds the grass, it's happy. Right? I, I need lettuce, and I find the lettuce, and I want beef. When I find the beef, I want something cold to drink with it. When I find something cold to drink with it, I want company to eat with. I want somebody to be eating with me. When I find that, I want something else. And one day, I might want to see the end of the Milky Way. Another day, I might want eternity. We all want eternity. I don't know of a cow that wants eternity, right? But I want eternity, and this therefore becomes a need for me as a human being. I am the, I mean, as humans are, the, the, the most needed being out there. Okay. That kind of puts me in a difficult situation. I have lots of needs, but that's not the end of it. I am also the most powerless. I have no power to attain anything that I need. No. Okay. On the face of it, I have the power to take this cup, take it to my mouth, take a sip of water and drink it and swallow it and so on and so forth. On the face of it. But think of it. In order to lift the cup, I need probably a hundred something different muscles to be functioning in sync in this arm. And then probably a hundred different nerve lines of nerve to be functioning. And if you think of like probably a million or or billion, whatever number of different cells interacting with each other, they are still interacting there. see my hands are still starting shaking. What interference do I have in that? Did you ever think of the cells interacting in your arm when you want to drink a cup of water? Then how is that you doing it? I drank the water, it's being digested. Am I doing it? If there is anyone out there who is doing it, I'll ask you to stop it for half an hour. Possible? No. You are not doing it. There is something else out there who has the power and control over the things that you think you control. I have one thing in all of this process. I have the inclination. I incline to drink the water. I incline to lift the cup. I have, if you go one step further, and that's actually somewhat um, deep theological <laughs> uh, point there, uh, I have the willpower. You know, partial human will, right? I have the will, and which is inclination. That may be ascribed to me. Beyond that, it's not mine but I need everything, I have no power to attain it, right? So that puts me in a really difficult bind. With the exception that I am connected to one who has the power to fulfill all my needs, and He is doing it. As long as I am connected to Him, no problem. This helps me understand my position and my need to Him. This is the beginning of a deep connection. When I am connected to Him in this way, come what may, He has the power to fend it off. And He has the power to procure everything that I need. He has the power to give me eternity. He has the power to give me paradise in eternity. He has the power to protect me from hell, hellfire. He has the power to protect me from sickness. He has the power to cure me when I'm ill. He has the power to feed me when I'm hungry. He has the power to give me a drink when I'm thirsty. He has the power to give me life and take my life. Fakr, The foundation of a deep connection to the Creator. Love, in some Sufi orders, provides this foundation. And it's not excluded here. Right? But this is something more straightforward. Then comes tafakkur. Now, we establish the connection, but we want to understand. We want to see it everywhere. In everything. Because remember, the wood is also needed and powerless. Right? Then comes tafakkur. We start to see it everywhere. The more we see it, the more we understand where we are living and who the king is. <clears throat> now, next... We develop compassion for the dire state that we see everything in without Him. If it were not for Him. We feel that compassion. We feel the neediness. We, we see the neediness of everything and we develop compassion for them. And that leads to a desire, enthusiasm, choke right? To serve them. Because we have a function in this whole contraction, in this whole system. We have a function that leads us to fulfill, that leads us to try to fulfill our function in this system. And what is that function? Inshallah, that will come when we read in more detail. But our fundamental function is to witness and acknowledge. To witness the star in the firmament in the, in, the, uh, in the sky and acknowledge it as a slave of God right and say subhanallah a star was born I don't know, let, let's say 10 billion years ago it came into existence in the gas and so on and so forth. came It started to shine 10 billion years ago. It beamed a ray of light 10 billion years ago from wherever it is. And that light has been traveling for 10 billion years to reach me and for me to witness it. For me to acknowledge it as God's creation and to say subhanallah. To acknowledge its Tasbih, glorification of God. And when it reaches me, if I say, acknowledge, Subhanallah, this is glorifying God. And I will glorify God with it. And I will present that glorification to God as the ashraf mahluq the most honored of the creation. Then the star fulfilled its purpose. If I say, Wow. And that's it. That ray of light that has been traveling for 10 billion years, gone to waste. The function is not fulfilled. Right? And that's an important thing. I need to have the compassion for the creation to have the enthusiasm to fulfill my function. I have a role in the creation. I'm, just, I'm not just needy and powerless. I have a role in the creation. And when I fulfill my function, I am the most honored of the creation who deserves to be addressed by the creator. And he is addressing me. And he is promising me his ru'ya, his countenance. I'll go there, inshallah. Maybe all go. I'll go there and I'll go, stand there Representing the entire creation. The more of the creation that I witness and acknowledge, the more I can represent there. Present there. Right? Okay, this is kind of the gist of the system that he offers to us. And this is all distilled from the Qur'an. Norse's contemplation is not just looking out there and looking at the stars and trees and so on and so forth, the carpet and the cushion and so and on so, and, and trying to come up with something. No, it is guided. It's guided contemplation. Without that guidance, nobody can or has, can, can attain or has attained the sound version of contemplation and understanding of the creation. It's not possible. That's why God sent His prophets again and again. That's why He sent His last prophet, and that's why He uh, endo- and- ensured that the message that He sent with the last prophet is going to be preserved until the end of days, end of time. That guidance is there. And this system of thought, system of abudiyah is distilled from that message. It's distilled from the Qur'an. Let me go back to the slides that I skipped. Uh, Maybe here before. Nursi goes through a period of spiritual crisis around 19, uh, let's say, 16, 15, 16, through uh, early 1920s. And, you know, if you think in different ways, you may extend this period, period or shorten this period, but certainly around that time, he was going through a period of spiritual crisis. And we see this in many great scholars of the Ummah. We see it with uh, Imam Ghazali, famously, with Imam Ghazali. Right? He disappears for you know, 10-something years and then comes back, oh, he's Imam Ghazali you now. <laughs> um, of course, he was Imam Ghazali before he, he left. He was the uh, you know top madaris, the uh, chief muder, chief uh, professor of the Nizamiya Madrasas, the, the highest uh, institution of learning of his time. right? But he saw something missing. He saw... Uh, that realization missing in him, in what he was teaching. So he leaves for 10-something years. He goes through this crisis and search, inner search, and then he comes back, and now he is the, the ripened fruit. Right? We see it with um, Abdul Qadir Jilani. It's a much longer period of uh, inner search he has. So we see it with Bedouz Zaman Said Nursi too. He is the scholar that he has become at age 15 already. And that keeps building onto it. He has, you know, he memorizes over 90 books. And when I say books, I don't mean, uh, you know, one volume as a book. Like say, Buhari is one book, as several volumes, right? He memorizes over 90 books. And every three months, he uh, goes over them, reciting them in, in his uh, memory, every three months. Uh, at some point, he, wants to write a dictionary. Uh, he says, all dictionaries give you words and give you different meanings for those words. I want to write a dictionary for the different words that correspond to each meaning. Something like a thesaurus. No. To so do this, he starts memorizing a dictionary, one of the, the largest diction, Arabic dictionaries out there. Uh, he memorized up the letter sin, and then he learns that a, um, a committee of scholars at Ashar had already done something like this, so he, he drops it. So he, again, he has enormous memory. He is the scholar that he is. And he also has the fame. He is Ba zaman, marvel of his age. Everybody knows about him. In Istanbul, I mean, we have stories of other people who, have, who were students in Istanbul at the time. They're like, know yeah, we have heard about him. He used to go uh, to the mosque, he prayed in order to see him as he as coming out. He has fame. He has recognition. He has everything. Uh, he fights in the war, falls prisoner of war uh, in, in World War I, uh, was in Russia for two years, and then when the Bolshevik revolution takes place in Russia, he escapes uh, through Europe and comes to Istanbul, and now he's recognized as a war hero. In addition to being a scholar, he's a war hero. He's appointed to this directly al-Hikmat islam at the highest council of scholars in the, in the empire. Perfect. One day he... While sharing, he looks at the mirror and sees a white piece of hair. And he's like, hold on one second. Excuse me? He, he looks at the mirror and sees a piece of white hair. And he's like, hold on one second. All this fame, all this material gain, all this recognition, all this information that I have accumulated in my it will go. One day I will die and none of it will come with me. Like imagine you are the most accomplished faqih uh, scholar of Islamic jurisprudence, let's assume, of uh, your time. Right? You know all the details of how wudu is taken, how inheritance and so on and so forth. Beyond the grave, even that is not of use. Now, the, the consequences of using that knowledge for good in the society is going to stay with you. But, you know, in, in, in the paradise, we don't take wudu. In the paradise, we don't calculate inheritance. Something else needs to come with us. And he's realizing this. This is part of, part of his spiritual crisis. At that time, he starts reading um, Abdul Qadir Jilani's um, um, Fatul Ghaib. ghayb Ghaib. And... In that, Abdul Qadir Jilani is really harsh and he's like, oh, the one who has not been able to get rid of the, the um, passions of his compulsive soul and oh, the one, oh, the one. He, and he reads it as if Jilani is addressing him. right? And he cannot handle it. He reads the book up to the half of it and then stops, puts it away. He cannot handle it. In the meanwhile, he starts reading Imam Rabbani, uh, Mektubat Rabbani. And in Mektubat Rabbani, there is a letter, Mektubat means letters, right? So in the letters of Imam Rabbani, there is a letter in which uh, Imam Rabbani is uh, telling somebody, it happens that this person is named Bediüzzaman, by the way, Tevhid-i in Turkish, so unify your Qibla, the direction that you turn, focus on one thing. And this is why I'm saying he seems to have had a oasis connection with Imam Rapani and Abu qādir Gilani, and he, he says, okay, oh, teacher, oh, master, you, you know, show me where how do I do tawheed al-kubla? How do I unify the kubla? The direction that I turn, and then it's inspired to him that it ha- it needs to be Quran, and he stops reading anything else and he starts focusing on the Quran and Quran and Quran. He contemplates the Quran for several years and we see him coming out of that spiritual crisis with this realization, right? And this is around early 1920s. What else happens in the early 1920s? He's in Ottoman Empire, right? Who knows some Turkish history here? Nobody knows some Turkish history here? Okay, history of Islam. What happens in the early 1920s? If you needed to name one event in the early 1920s for the history of Islam, what would you name? Was that the end of the caliphate, or was that? Yeah, the 1924, the, the abolishment of the caliphate, right? The foundation of the republic of Turkey, the end of the Ottoman Empire, which then corresponds to an end to I just mentioned, right? All. Uh, Sufi lodges are closed. All madrasas are closed. Religion is banned in the country and so on and so forth. Um, uh, This person on the upper side, Süleyman Hilmi Tunahan, was a mudarris, a professor of the Fatih madrasa, the top madrasa of the Ottoman Empire when all of this is happening. And he also happened to be the uh, head of the uh, mudaris the, the Professor's Association, at the time. In 1924, the government passes a law, the Turkish government passes a law uh, it is on the unification of education in the country and closes all madrasas and, and stops all religious education, with, with a minor exception, but you know, that's an insignificant exception. And all these professors of, you know, religious scholarship come together and write a letter to the um, to the parliament in Ankara, and they say, and they are trying to bypass the situation. They say we know that this is a difficult, you know, uh, this is, the times are difficult for our state. Uh, the The budget is tight. Uh, the, the, the state doesn't have money to pay us. We are willing to teach without compensation. Let us teach. And the response is, the law on unity in education is in effect, acting against its stipulations is subject to severe punishment. Bang. Right? stop, stop. At this time, and that's Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, obviously the founder of the Republic. At this time, this is another thing, Uh, they banned the, the adhan to uh, being called in Arabic, and they required adhan to be called in Turkish. And this is a news. Uh, uh, this is a news about nineteen Mu'addins, adhan callers calling the uh, being called while call, calling the adhan in Arabic, and they are being sent to jail. Nineteen reactionaries condemned to prison, nineteen thirty-three. So this this was the time, right? At the beginning of this time, Nursi. Um, decides to go to that cave and become an ascetic. But then there was a... Time is over. Give me five minutes. Is it fine? You're not missing prayer, right? Okay, five minutes. I'll finish in five minutes. Uh, He he goes to the cave and he wants to, you know, withdraw from all society, but there was a rebellion in the region because he's so famous and charismatic. He wasn't involved in the rebellion, but they fear his presence there. They exile him to Western Anatolia. He is exiled to a mountain village called Barla. And they exile him to this mountain village because it's so distant. They think he's not going to be able to do anything there. I've gone there. I've been there. And now it's easy to go because you go to the city of Sparta. you take a bus all the way... Barla, at that time you had to go to Sparta, take a car to, in the back you see a lake, take a car to the lake, or maybe take a donkey to the lake, cross the lake by boat, and then keep, um, I did not put that picture, and then keep climbing, and then you would come to this village. Right, so he's thrown there to this village, but he has realized, he has something that's cannot be stopped he has the light he cannot stop light right he has the light the villagers around him recognize this light and he starts teaching them and they keep writing what he teaches right and they, they the, those become what he dictates become small treatises many of them are illiterate peasants somebody reads to them and they try to understand but there is a light that's attracting them and that puts them in a state of enthusiasm and effort, shavkat, remember the last item, shavkat, shavkat, sorry. A state of enthusiasm, many of them cannot write, and this is in Arabic, writing, reading and writing in Arabic in Turkish, with Arabic letters in Turkish, very difficult, right? Uh, they put, take a glass, put something that's written by somebody else before, put an empty blank piece of paper on top of it, turn a light bulb on underneath and scribe through and copy secretly. This is this is illegal activity. Right? Secretly. And it spreads from there. By the late 1940s, according to a prosecutor who was prosecuting a nurse in a court trial, about six hundred thousand copies of his works, manuscripts, handwritten copies of his works were all around. Turkey. That's the product of that contemplation and realization, right? This is this is from in, in, uh, from inside the house where he wrote most of his works in, in Varna. And uh, that's a huge plane tree, and you can see that there's a little thing coming out of the tree. He may had somebody, a carpenter, make that. He would climb it Do I have a better picture. Yeah, maybe you will see better there in the back. He would climb there and stand nights supplicating there on the tree. Like people say like, we, at night we would go to bed and keep hearing him crying and supplicating from a distance. He would go to the mountains for weeks and contemplate. Right? He did not take the sword. At some point he did that too. Right? But the knowledge, the light, that was powerful. And that, that light still shines today. So inshallah after prayer we will try to read a few uh, pieces that he wrote which should uh help all of this to sink in uh, better. Subhanaka la ilma lana illa ma 'allamtana innaka antal alimul hakim wa akhiru dawahum alhamdulillahirabbil alamin al-fatiha